I think one of the things you'll find Christians longing for in their walk with Jesus, uh, one of the things we desire to be characteristic of our personal lives as Christians and our corporate life as Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, I've heard this a lot in the five years of our church, and yet one of the things we really want but can seem kind of elusive at times is joy. Life in a fallen world, corrupted by sin, life in these earthly bodies, earth suits, like Daryl and Carla like to call it, uh, is marred by sickness. It presents us with many reasons to be downtrodden and fearful. And yet in Christ, we long to have our testimony as Christians be one that's different than how the world responds. We long to exhibit joy over what could seem more rational, like fear or, or cynicism. And so it's, it's important to ask the question, how can we cultivate, cultivate joy, really the discipline of joy, in our hearts? How can Loudoun Valley Baptist Church be a church where someone attending for the first time is struck by joy? Not necessarily lightheartedness or energy, but earnest joy. We come to Luke 10 again this morning. We've last been in this chapter three weeks ago, where we saw Jesus send out 72 disciples to go ahead of him into the cities where he was going to be teaching. Now, as we read these verses now, as the 72 return, we see this morning, three reasons to rejoice as Christians. And as we'll find out, each of these reasons points us to the power of God, not the power of us. Each of these reasons point us to the glory of Christ, not the glory of us. See, true Christian joy is found when we're not the point and when all we have is Christ. So follow along as I read Luke 10, starting in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and didn't see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Three reasons to rejoice as Christians this morning, and we'll mention them as we go, all right? 
Reason to rejoice, number one. Jesus has power over your worst enemy. Jesus has power over your worst enemy. So Christian, if you feel unenthused by your faith, if you sense lackluster joy in your walk with Christ, here's the first reason for you to rejoice this morning. Jesus has power over your worst enemy. Look at verse 17. The 72 returned with what? With joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now we'll see in in verse 20 uh, that Jesus will tell the 72 not to rejoice in that, but instead to rejoice that their names are written in heaven. So what's going on here? Is this this real joy? I, I don't think the context makes it sound like Jesus is saying, is, is kind of chastising them for being joyful here, right? I mean, Jesus himself is going to launch into a lot of joy in the next verse by saying, yes, Satan has fallen. Instead, what we see here is that this joy, starting in verse 17, isn't the ultimate joy the disciples must seek, but still joy, and it's pretty great joy. So before we get to a more awesome joy in verse 20, let's think about what's happening in these opening verses. Think about the disciples, right? The 72. They've been sent out. They've gone into these towns. And they've seen demons fly away by the name of Jesus. I mean, I think anybody would be absolutely exhilarated by seeing that kind of power on display. Demons, even demons, are listening to these lowly disciples because they represent Jesus. And it's clear that they're not cocky here, right? Because they know it's not their power at work. In verse 17, they say it's in the power of Jesus' name that these demons are running scared. And they're overjoyed. I mean, if you've ever been part of a ministry in a church or a a parachurch ministry, like I know many of you have, and you see just fruit that just amazes you, you never thought this would actually happen, much less through you, there's not quite any joy like that, is there? These disciples are overjoyed, and so they come back and they say, Jesus, guess what? This has been amazing. And Jesus, in response, kindly said, like, reaffirms their joy, but then he says, he, he prays, or he, he speaks to them of a, of a vision or something that he's, he understands that gives them insight into a bigger picture of what's going on in their joy. And he gives them insight into, you know what's been really happening as demons have been running for, uh, scared in, in my name? Something extremely remarkable is taking place. Satan is being defeated. Look at verse 18. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God on earth is accomplishing something incredible. The defeat of our worst enemy, Satan himself, the accuser of God's elect. Those demons are coming out. 
And Satan himself is being cast out, falling like lightning from heaven. These mentions of snakes and, and scorpions, more than just giving some of you guys a little bit of phobia this morning, they hearken back to texts like Psalm 91 and Deuteronomy 8. But perhaps most wonderfully, they hearken back to Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve have just sinned against God, and God has cursed them and the world under sin. And yet, in the midst of one of the bleakest passages in Scripture, there is a ray of light and hope shining through. God gives a promise that an offspring will come who will tread on the serpent. Satan himself. And here in Luke 10, the offspring has arrived. And as Jesus is setting up his powerful rule, he tells his disciples, Satan's done for. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, I was reading 1 Peter recently, and and he warns the Christians about Satan, and he calls Satan our adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And that doesn't really sound defeated to me. A lion seeking to devour me doesn't sound like I should see Satan as defeated. And, And you'd be right, of course, in the sense that Satan is a very real enemy. I mean, it takes a very real enemy to be described by an apostle as a ravenous lion. But in a phrase many have, other, have used other than me, Satan is a lion on a leash. The battle between God and Satan is not a fair fight. Satan only goes as far as God lets him. And in Christ's life and work, Satan is being defeated. We see this same picture in Revelation chapter 12 where Satan is pictured as a dragon being cast out of heaven and yet wreaking havoc on God's church on earth. But he knows he's defeated. The old commentator Leon Morris on Revelation chapter 12 says, the troubles of the persecuted righteous, you and me, arise not because Satan is too strong, but because he is beaten. He is doing all the harm he can while he can. But he will not be able to do this for much longer. And so, Christian, do you see the reason for joy in this first truth? You and I have a very powerful enemy. The word Satan means accuser, right? Satan loves to accuse us of sin and point out guilt in our hearts, even though Jesus has died for and washed away that sin and that guilt. It was up to Satan, you and I would be destroyed along with him in rebellion against God. But here's the thing. Our God is stronger. Jesus has authority over Satan. And as he establishes his kingdom here in Luke 10, in in 10 chapters or so, as he goes to the cross to, what does Paul say in Colossians, put the forces of darkness to open shame as he rises again in victory a few chapters later, as his church goes out in Luke part 2, the book of Acts, to proclaim the gospel, as we even now look forward to his return, Satan is being crushed and defeated. 
for God is over all. Now, I don't know about you, but that raises another question in my mind. Why all this waiting around, God? If you, if you have Satan on a leash, why not, why not just do away with him and, and be done with this? Why not destroy Satan now? It seems unloving that you would let him persecute your church when you have the power to snuff him out. I think there's multiple ways to answer that question. We know that God delays for a certain reason. One is to bring all sinners to himself, all those he has chosen to bring to salvation through Christ. But another question, maybe not satisfactory necessarily, but, but it's a, a, an answer nonetheless, is that God is always after the most glory to his name, isn't he? And so we can be sure that his allowing of Satan some power for some time before his final demise will somehow, some way, make God's name more glorious. Church, we can trust God. And as we do, we can find much joy in the truth that Jesus has power over our worst enemy. Reason to rejoice number two. Christian... Your eternity is secure. Your eternity is secure. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus acknowledges the, the real joy the disciples are experiencing in this newfound power at their disposal in the name of Christ. But after acknowledging that and showing them the bigger picture of what's going on, he, he steers them away from that joy as their kind of end-all, be-all joy. He steers them to an even deeper reality that they should cling for to get joy. And that's the truth, that their eternity is secure. The imagery of a book or a, a ledger full of names in the kind of the roll call of heaven, this imagery is found all throughout Scripture. To have one's name in that book is to be assured life and salvation by God. It's, it's to be assured that you are known by God, that you belong to God. And that joy is a joy much more rooted and deep than just a joy at power wielding over demons. It's a joy of knowing God. It's a joy of belonging to God by faith. This, says Jesus, is where the joy of his disciples can be found to an even greater degree. Okay, think about it. power over evil, power over Satan is all fine and good. But belonging to God, it's so much better. And the same is true for us, church. We can find joy in many things as a church of Christ. We can find joy in, in successes the Lord brings to us in our ministry. We can find joy in the fellowship of the saints that is right and good. We can find joy when we see that we are maturing in our faith and someone else says, you're bearing fruit in my life. 
Parents can find joy when they see little glimpses of faith growing in their children. But as Christians, our ultimate joy is deeper. Our ultimate joy is this. We are objects of God's laser-focused, Satan-crushing, salvation-accomplishing, no one able to snatch us out of his hand kind of love. We sing that, that modern hymn sometimes, not today, but sometimes called Immovable, Our Hope Remains. One of the verses goes like this. The Lord acquits who can condemn, though Satan's accusations fly. Satan's power can never reach our names to blot them from the book of life. The Son has surely made us free. His word forever stands. And all our joy is knowing we are graven on his wounded hands. That's where our joy must be rooted. As we think about joys, we want more joys, we want to cultivate more joy. This, Jesus is saying, is the root of that. And just notice how this has nothing to do with you or me, right? And this joy is not rooted in you, Christian. It doesn't begin with you. It's not meant to be manufactured by you. This joy is due to something that you haven't done, but something that has happened to you. Something you simply must believe and meditate upon and rejoice in. So here at Loudon Valley Baptist Church, we want more joy. But the answer to that desire is not merely to do more, but to look more. To look more at what God has done for us. I mean, let's face it. We're busy people. We're knee-deep in jobs, schedules, commitments. And that's not wrong, necessarily. But when we wonder as Christians, and when we wonder as a church, why we don't have more joy in Jesus, I wonder if it's sometimes as simple as asking, when's the last time I planned for unhurried time to meditate on who I am in Christ? Christian, feast your soul on this truth. If you are in Christ, your eternity is secure. There's no way the accuser can touch you. There's no way you can outsin God's grace. If you are in Christ, if you're trusting and clinging to him, you cannot outlast God's love. You cannot outmaneuver his sovereign plan to save you. Meditate on that. This week, take a piece of paper and write down the implications of what this should mean for your joy, your name. Your name is known by God and is written in his book. In his commentary on Luke, Mike McKinley mentions how the disciples here have joy in their successful ministry, but, but then he says, you know, their, their ministry might not always be this grand. Maybe you might feel that way too. Man, if, if I was able to just cast out a demon, 
I mean, first of all, I was able to like find somebody with a demon in Loudoun County and like, cast it out. Yeah, I might be riding a spiritual high too, right? Ministry might not look this grand. Thus, the need for a greater joy. Mike writes, seasons of fruitfulness may come and go. If our identity is wrapped up in those things, we will despair, but have a better source of joy. The promise of heaven has no peaks, no valleys, and the joy of belonging to the Lord knows no season. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you should know that the Bible does not teach universalism. That is the idea that all will be saved in the end. If we, if we, had, if we tried to make the Bible teach universalism, we'd have to literally tear out big chunks of it. No, God has sent his gospel out into the world, but men and women, boys and girls everywhere must respond to it in faith. Everyone everywhere must repent of their sin and place their trust in Jesus alone. If they don't, if their names are not placed in the book of life, they will spend eternity apart from God, separated from the source of all life and joy in hell. So friend, do not delay. Turn to the one who is offering you life forever in his loving embrace. Turn to Jesus. Repent of your sin and Place your faith in Jesus' death on the cross in your place to take the punishment for your sin. If you will trust him, you will find joy. And that joy will grow into something deeper than you've ever experienced before. Okay, finally, reason to rejoice number three. God saves the weak and lowly. God saves the weak and lowly. This is so cool. Because in reason number one, we saw the disciples have joy. In reason number two, we've seen that Jesus exhorts them to greater joy. Okay, fine and good. But now in reason three, who's rejoicing? It's Jesus. This is something altogether different, isn't it? Something altogether wonderful. That Jesus is joyful. Verse 21, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. The, the Greek word there for rejoice is more than just run-of-the-mill good vibes. This is over-the-top delight in Jesus' heart. One scholar calls it positive exaltation. Another scholar calls it to be thrilled with joy. The old 1800s scholar, or 1900s, B.B. Warfield wrote, the word is a strong one and conveys the idea of exuberant gladness, a gladness that fills the heart. Think about it, church. Isn't it good news this morning that our Savior loves joy? I mean, if, if, if Jesus just demanded we be joyful, if he kind of rigidly wrote out prescriptions for our joy, like a doctor ordering some medication for us, I mean, why would we get so excited about that? 
Christian, here we see a deeper, realer reason to want joy, and that's because we serve a Savior who wants joy. We serve a Savior who is joyful, who has created joy, who has always experienced joy. We want joy because we see the deep, pervading, never-ending joy that characterizes our Savior, that describes our triune God. Jesus rejoices. He doesn't just command. He doesn't just sacrifice his life. He doesn't just create miracles. He doesn't just weep with those who weep. Jesus rejoices. And notice how he rejoices. He rejoices in the fellowship of the Trinity. You see the Trinity right here in a few short words? Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. Trinity. See, the triune God exists eternally future and eternally past in a relationship of love and joy. And Jesus invites us into that joy. That's amazing. I think it's actually really helpful for Christians who want joy like we do to not just start with our own hearts, but to start with the heart of our God. Because there we find joy unspeakable. If you're interested in learning more about God's joy in God, I'd commend to you the first chapter in John Piper's book, The Pleasures of God, where he goes in depth on what it means that God takes joy in, delights in his son. I posted a link to a free PDF of it on the Facebook Connect group. You can email me if you want the link. The church, our joy, our joy as Christians is not just human joy. Our joy is distinctly Christian because it's caught up in the joy of the Trinity. It's amazing. It's amazing that our love and our joy and our new life is not just something new, but it's something that's brought into what's always been. God's love, God's joy, God's truth in and of himself. And notice Jesus rejoices and thanks his father. I think we, we learn an important, helpful tip there. Joy and thanksgiving always go hand in hand, don't they? Can't really have one without the other. And I'm not really sure which one's the chicken and which one's the egg for us. I mean, if, if you want more joy, be thankful. If you want to be more thankful, seek more joy. And why does Jesus thank his Father? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus rejoices that God has revealed himself and his salvation not to typical people you'd think God would gravitate to. 
the powerful, the, the influential, the sophisticated, the movers and shakers, the socially elite, the social media people with a little kind of check by their name that shows they're a public figure that you should listen to or they're certified or whatever that is. No, he has revealed himself to the lowliest of the low. God pursues the lowly, those who recognize their need for him and then fly to him. Of course, that doesn't mean you have to be uneducated or simple-minded to believe in Jesus. It means you need to divest yourself of your pride and boast in him alone. Finding all your meaning, all your value in him alone. In the, some of the verses we're going to study in our inductive Bible study Wednesday night, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the apostle Paul writes to the church and he says, consider your calling, brothers. I love that. It's kind of like, who are you? Remember? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Thanks, Paul. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Okay, Paul, what are you getting at? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, why is he doing all this? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is God's modus operandi. This is how he works. He lifts up the lowly and he humbles the proud. We saw Mary in the Magnificat in Luke 1 rejoice in this very same thing. God lifts up the lowly, he humbles the proud, so he might get the glory. You don't need to reach a certain tier to be worthy of his love. You just need to need his love. You just need to humble yourself. And what's crazy is that Jesus thinks that's worth having over-the-top, overflowing, ecstatic joy in. That truth makes Jesus joyful. How much more us? I don't think we can have more joy than Jesus, but you get what I'm saying. So, friends, what's your modus operandi? How do you act towards God? Are, do you find yourself often kind of self-assured? Are you constantly impressed with yourself? Do you constantly pursue greater applause from others? Is God just lucky to have you? Humble yourself. God is not in the business of saving those who don't think they need much saving. But on the flip side, friend, are you aware painfully so at times, of your inadequacies? And do you feel at times insignificant or unworthy or needy? If that's you, welcome to church. You're just who Jesus has come to save. You're just who Jesus is delighted to work powerfully through so that even the forces of darkness tremble in his name. Loudon Valley Baptist Church, how can we grow in our joy? 
Well, three reasons to meditate on. Jesus has power over our worst enemy. Our eternity is secure. And God saves the weak and the lowly. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that we can often lack joy in our Christian lives. So we ask that you forgive us and remind us, Jesus, that you are a Savior who rejoices and that you long to bring us into your joy. Lord, may our lives be increasingly characterized by the thrill that our names are written in heaven. And no one, even our worst enemy, can blot them out. Amen.